I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, and with me today is Skylar Reeves, CEO of Ardent Growth. Skylar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I'm excited about this topic. I'll give you a quick story and a little bit of insight into my background. So 10, 12 years ago, when I first became aware of the discipline SEO, I joined an, an agency And one of my first jobs, I was sat in front of a computer, given an Excel spreadsheet with hundreds of tabs. And maybe I think the project was 100,000 keywords. And I'd never experienced SEO or been in this kind of environment before. Someone basically instructed and taught me how to theme and group keywords in Excel. But back then, the person that taught me was lovely, but they weren't particularly experienced in, in Excel. We didn't maybe have sentiment and AI to work with in the same way. So a lot of it was manual. But what it did give me is it it gave me a real foundation in SEO, which I think really benefited me in the rest of my career. And the process for me gave me such clarity and exposure to what people search for. I've always had kind of an affinity with topic clustering, keyword research, and that aspect of SEO. That's a little bit about my story with SEO and topic clustering in particular, but I want to know a bit about yours. So where did topic clustering come onto your radar in your career? So it actually goes back a few years. My background is in computer science and topic clustering from a graph theory standpoint is very different from the way that I think SEOs and marketers sort of think about it, but uh, they do, they do have some, some overlap, but I think uh, in the marketing side of things, it was, uh, you know, as we were trying to plan out contents um, for customers that we were working with. And, you know, we you read, I think, was it 2017 when Matthew Barbie and some folks over at HubSpot published that article on HubSpot about the uh, the topic clusters and the hub and spoke model. And I remember thinking as we were trying to implement this ourselves that, hey, you know, this sounds good, but like, how do you do it? And, you know, and how do you know that you're right? That was that was sort of the, the key thing for me. And Sometimes I think one of my downfalls is, you know, coming from that that sort of computer science background, we're always trying to uh, back things up with data and and, and come up with, uh, you know, solutions and algorithms that, that can scale uh, predictably. So doing it manually was, you know, kind of a, a pain and uh, time consuming. And it was a lot of times just relying on your gut instinct. And I didn't like that. So I decided to 
sit down in front of the chalkboard for took about a, about a month or so to kind of work out all the math that we needed to do uh, to be able to process the data at scale and how we wanted to kind of group things together from uh, um, in our graphs. Wrote up the math and we built an algorithm to go solve it. So, and in your current environment, so this is already quite interesting to me because I've been in environments where data scientists are responsible for topic clustering. Sometimes a content marketer might be left to do it. Um, sometimes you get just marketing generalists that have this as one aspect of their role. In your environment you're in right now, who's responsible for topic clustering? Now that we have a tool for it, it's it's fairly straightforward because we so we built a front end interface for it. Um, most of the people here, there's there's a handful of engineers, but then we have a lot of uh, you know standard growth marketers and content marketers and things like that. So we built a front end interface for them, so they'll handle the keyword research. They'll collect all the data that they want to feed into the algorithm, um, but then the algorithm handles it uh, for them. One thing I think that's worth noting is that there's a there's a bit of semantics, I think, that have to be unwrapped here a bit. So when we're talking about topic clusters or a hub or a spoke or a keyword or anything like that, there's some ambiguity between terms. And I think that what we're really doing, like if we want to talk about this from a, the way it's like would be phrased in, uh, from a graph theory standpoint, is actually just grouping. It's not actual clustering. Um, a clustering is... Just when you take two nodes in a graph and connect them together with some with some edge between them. So if these were pages on the web, it'd be two pages with an internal link or something, right? But when you're doing it with words and phrases, it's not quite the same thing. And if we were to think about the way HubSpot uh, talks about the hub and the spoke model, it's very it's it's somewhat different because you can't algorithmically predict what hubs are going to be because it's that's entirely dependent upon your business model you know how you actually want to group these things together but from a semantic standpoint and from an intent standpoint you certainly can and you know you can kind of rely on 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 google to do that so again just one thing i want to kind of make clear is that what you're doing is you're taking you're taking topics grouping them together um but then your actual hubs right are really dependent on like what are you trying to accomplish as a business and you have to kind of figure those out uh, from a top-down standpoint of what are your products, who do you serve, where where are you position at in the market, et cetera. But uh, to reiterate it, though, we yeah most of the most of the clustering is just handled by the algorithm itself now, and uh, we let uh, strategists handle the keyword research and then feed it into the uh, into our interface. So for anyone listening that maybe hasn't been exposed to topic clustering and some of these processes that we're talking about here, from your perspective, what does topic clustering help you achieve? as a marketer, as a business person, or just as a business? So the primary thing that it solves for us is, I mean, ultimately it's driving revenue, but that's because when we cluster things appropriately on the site, um, we can rank better, right? We can rank faster. We can help Google understand what the page is about. And that's ultimately, I think, what a lot of people overlook when it comes to things like search engine optimization is that, your, your number one goal is just to make it where Google can understand what you're trying to tell it uh, from a pure SEO standpoint. Now, there are other factors that go into that, too, like UX, and it's ultimately for the, you know, for the, uh, for the reader or the customer. But when you're trying to tell the algorithm something, you need to tell Google's algorithm, hey, this is what this page is about. Remove the ambiguity, make it very clear for it so it doesn't second guess itself as it's trying to index you and rank you. Um, and do we need to make one page or do we need to make two, which helps save resources? That way you're not spending budget creating multiple pages when you really could have just captured all the rankings for those terms and brought in that traffic to your website with just a single page. 
for anyone that's familiar with the hub and spoke model and the more manual or semi-automated methods of topic clustering, can you describe the differences between the software that you've built and particularly the algorithm that drives the software and the clustering in comparison to what people are trying to do manually? So when you try to do it manually, I've seen two people, I've seen two pr- approaches to this that people have taken. One of them is they'll take all this keyword data and they'll begin to sort of add qualitative coding to it, like you would do with any sort of qualitative research, you know, where you'll say, okay, I've got all these, I'm going to kind of work out my own themes that I'm seeing here. And a lot of it becomes uh, based on gut instinct. And that's not only takes a while, but it's, it's also not really based in any sort of data outside of um, outside of your gut. And so if you take, you know, three different people and have them code that same data, you're going to end up with three different data sets. The other way, though, um, that I've seen people do it is you can, let's say you take two topics. Um, I think one of the examples that we talked about in the past was uh, if you take a topic like project management software and project management tools and you look at them side by side on Google, what you want to see is, you know, are the is the intent the same? And from a from an initial kind of glance over, when you just look at the two um, keywords themselves, you would think, oh, well, yeah, they're the, they're the same thing. Tools, software, um, you know, are, are synonym uh, for what the user's wanting. And they are from a user's perspective, but they're not really from Google's perspective. So if you were to look at the two search results side by side, you'll see that Google's ranking uh, different pages for each of those each of those terms. And so what you can do is you can take your set of keywords, put them side by side in Google, and you want to look to see what's the degree of overlap. What URLs uh, are Google ranking uh, for page uh, for this keyword A versus keyword B? And if they have a high degree of overlap, then that's Google's way of telling you, um, or what you can infer from that is that if one page can rank for both keywords, then you're, a single page on your site can rank for both keywords as well. But if you see um, either a large um, disparity between the URLs that are actually ranking, or if you see that the URLs that are ranking, say, in the top one, two, or three positions for keyword A are ranking, you know, in the seven, eighth, ninth, tenth positions, whatever, for keyword B, then that's also um, a signal that you can uh, you can separate out those two topics. So I've seen people do it that way as well, but you can imagine when you're trying to do that on a very large data set, that that is very, very time consuming. If I've understood that correctly, then the key benefit to the software that you've built, or one of the key benefits, is the ability to distinguish the overlap or the intent between different keywords. Yeah, exactly. You were touching on it there at the end in terms of doing this at scale. So again, I expect a lot of people listening to this have done keyword research manually, maybe at a page or a category level on a website. But when you talk about doing this at scale, what kind of data sets are we talking about? What, what's the number of keywords that you're able to analyze? I think the, I think the largest set that we've looked at thus far was somewhere around like 4 million different keywords. We, I mean, we can do as many as theoretically possible, but um, the larger that your TAM is and like the more horizontal your business model is, the, you know, the more keywords that you would want to feed in this thing. Something to note though, too, is even when you're working in a very small niche, like let's say you were just um, a, a project management app, for example. Um, when you go to Google or when you go to, uh, let's say you go into a tool like Ahrefs, a keyword research tool, right? And you say, give me every single topic related to, to project management. 
there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of keywords you're going to get back. I think it's close to three hundred something thousand, and that's just one single topic, right? So you can imagine if you're a project management, um, like if you're a software company that produces a project management software, or whatever, then you're going to have project management. You're going to have all the keywords related to Gantt charts, task management, productivity, time tracking, etc. Right? And when you begin to aggregate all of these up, it's you know these become uh, very large data sets, and uh, not that you have to process all that data, but we like to because we want to understand when we're going to create a page, what's the total value that that page could potentially drive for us? And there's a ton of keywords, right, that are very long tail, low search volume, but can drive a lot of revenue. And when you just kind of focus at the, you know, the high volume kind of seed type terms, right, the the core sort of ideas, you miss out on a lot of that richness of, of uh, not only from you know, you address that in your content, you can, you can rank those terms and drive revenue. Um, but also when you're actually analyzing the data, being able to see all those variations of, of, uh, questions and phrases, right. That can also get paired along with a short tail term really helps you understand more about what that page needs to be about. Uh, so yeah, so we tend to do it for, I'd say like normal sizes in between if it's for one topic, it's probably like 50,000 to half a million. Um, but if we're doing it for an entire industry, it quickly uh, begins to increase. Visualizing the process here, and I can understand a little bit more about how your software helps to cluster keywords. And then you're still left, though, with a large amount of data. So you're still left with potentially hundreds or thousands, depending on, again, the size of the industry or sector that you're looking at. But, you know, still hundreds or thousands of topic clusters, potentially. And you mentioned before that I think you said there's uh, someone in your business, a role like a keyword strategist or content strategist. How do they then take that information and prioritize it? So what's your approach to prioritization? We built a formula for that too, because that was the, once we, once we actually solved the first problem of being able to cluster things together at scale, we were like, great, now what? <laughs> you know, and, and we're just sitting there looking at this massive amount of data and we're like, all right, we have to figure out a way to, to be able to take action on this. And so the place where you start though, is you start by saying, okay, like what are the goals of the business? Right. So you have to like, think about the business strategy and then cause con- you know, content strategy is a subset of the business strategy is really, it's a subset of marketing strategy, which is a subset of business strategy. Right. So you kind of have to work your way down from the business strategy first to get down to con- to the content strategy and say, okay, what are we trying to accomplish here? And uh, once you know that, like, let's say the strategy is to, you know, compete for this, maybe you're launching a new feature or you're trying to, you found that your ICP is always talking about this one particular, uh, you know, use case that they use it for. Well, maybe you want to tackle that first, right? And so once you know that, um, you can go into the data, filter down by anything that relates to that intent. But the way we prioritize is, we effectively say, okay, let's look at what's the, we do a balance between what's the total opportunity here, right? That we, that we could reasonably rank for. So we approach it the same way you would do any sort of TAM analysis, a total addressable market analysis. And we say, okay, what's the total opportunity here? Um, what do we, what, what's the value of this? So you gotta, you have to take into account things like, you know, what would be our conversion rates if people land on this type of content? What's the conversion rate? on top of funnel content versus bottom of funnel content, things like that. So we plug these numbers in. If the customer has them, we just plug them in. And then it takes that data plus the data that we've already collected from the cluster. And it also goes and looks to see something I can't like 
fully divulge here because this is really like the secret sauce but we we look to see like what's the topical authority like how well does google believe that they're already established in that niche and we use that to order and sort things um into a priority and so the way we actually go and use this is we basically just take all the data feed it to the algorithm it spits us out a csv we have it in a pivot table and we pretty much just work our way down from the top and it's been working uh, phenomenally. Um, so it does ju- just does the calculations for us. And what it, what it tries to focus on is where can we get the highest impact with, a li- with the least amount of effort? So whether that's refreshing an existing page, you know, to bring up, you know, several lucrative uh, keywords from, say, ranks 7 through 10 up to 1 through 3, or whether it's creating brand new content. It works both ways. So, so I assume that as part of the algorithm, that there's some kind of competitor score or analysis that happens as well? To some extent. So we originally, whenever we built this, we decided to say, like, let's not look at competitors because we wanted to look beyond competitors. We wanted to actually look at the market itself, you know, and, and standard sort of approaches if someone were to do, like, your typical competitor gap analysis or something like that for uh, for SEO. You're always only looking at what your competitors already have and not looking at what have they not even touched yet? Like where where's the blue ocean, blue ocean still at? And so we try to look beyond that. But that being said, whenever we do collect all the data, um, we also like will put in a set of uh, competitors that we want to be able to compare to, and we pull in their data as well, so that we can see not only how well are we doing across the entire market um, from a visibility standpoint, but how well are the various competitors doing across that market as well. We also use that to help. Um, identify uh, another score that we have in our um, output is what we call relevancy. And because when you do pull in a massive amount of keyword data to, th- to go process, you, you'll end up with some noise. Um, it's just inevitable. You know, there are phrases that are synonyms from one another, acronyms that don't mean the same thing, um, you know, things like that. And so by pulling in competitor data across it, we're also able to sort of suppress more of the noise because it's, uh, it lowers the relevancy score and pushes it down to the to the bottom of our data set. So it's still in there. We just never really see it. And you mentioned inputs, and uh, I appreciate, again, there's certain things you can reveal, certain things you can't. Uh, so just share whatever you're comfortable with. But I'm really curious because uh, you laughed and said, oh, we've got a formula for that too. But yeah. it sounded like there is a manual aspect of assessing, and you used the phrase total attainable market. Is that correct? The main manual aspect is actually just getting the keyword data, like like pulling it from a tool like Ahrefs, SEMrush, Search Console, et cetera, right? So take all that and then you just feed it into it. Do you feed in manually the potential conversion rates or click-through rates and metrics like that? Yeah, we can do it both ways. So if we're doing, because not every customer really knows what that's going to be yet, um, especially if they're, say, a Series A, um, you know, they haven't quite, maybe they've just now found product market fit or something like that and they don't really know how well they're going to convert across various stages of the funnel, right? So when they don't know that, you can use a, we use a proxy. Um, so similar to the way Ahrefs calculates traffic value, they essentially say, you know, what's the volume of the keyword? What would be the click-through rate if it was ranking number one based on this SERP, right? Because you'll have a lower click-through rate if there's a local pack at the top or if there's four ads at the top versus two, Right. So they use that to calculate traffic and then they say, okay, like, and then what's the uh, average and or median uh, CPC uh, for that keyword? And that's how Ahrefs calculates traffic value. And so we, we do essentially the same thing um, where we'll say, okay, like what would, what would be the value of this data? Except we 
can also like we pull it in from different sources as well because Ahrefs doesn't always have all the data. So we'll pull it in from uh, SimRush and Google Ads Planner uh, to sort of fill in the gaps and then uh, use a median when it, whenever there's nothing there. So then we can see if you were to pay for this traffic, what would the what would it cost you, right? And so that doesn't tell you in a predictive sense like how much, uh, like you can't forecast from that to say, here's what the value of this page would be worth. But you can say, you can use it as a proxy to give you directionally accurate, um, accurate data to say, this page is, if we were to buy that traffic, it would cost us this much. This page, if we were to buy the traffic, would cost us 20% more. And you can say, okay, if that's the case, then that 20% more is probably going to be a more valuable page to you. So you can use it um, relatively that way. But if the if the customers do have very good uh, conversion data across different stages of the funnel. If, if they have a more sophisticated analytics setup and you know CRM um, that's you know pulling in, especially if they're have any sort of sales uh, motion going on, right, where we can actually know like how did things look all the way through the funnel, then um, basically we we process data, get those numbers from them, put those numbers in, and then it'll it'll spit it out for us as well. I think about the strategist at the receiving end of this information, and the question that keeps going through my mind is then. What is a strategist there to do? If you have the formulas and the algorithm, which essentially helps to break down and deliver topic clusters in a really logical, organized way with all of the key metrics, what's the strategic input that's then required? I think what it does for them is it frees them to focus more on strategy and less on analysis. So what they're doing is they're thinking about, okay, what are the key important areas of this industry that we do want to focus on, right? And so they're the ones that actually go and to say a tool like Ahrefs and we'll be putting in things like, I want to find everything related to project management. I want to find everything and, and thinking about all the different ways that you could talk about that, right? You could have task management, um, you know, work, um, uh, what is it like, uh, like workload management, things like that, right? So they're they're thinking about what are the different inputs that I need to provide to these tools to be able to get the data that I need to feed into the algorithm. Beyond that, what they're primarily responsible for after that is being able to understand when they're looking at the data, like what makes sense for the business when it comes to their resources, knowing do they have the, you know, does that business have the resources to produce the content that's needed for this? Does this business understand the customers? Like how, like how much customer research that is? So they spend a lot of time doing customer research, um, doing interviews with customers, collecting qualitative insights. Cause we like to take customer research data, uh, from like one-on-one interviews or chat logs or gong recordings and marry that with the clustering data so that we can find where do they overlap? Because having all the data in the world is, is great. That's fine. Right. But if you still have to actually create something with it. And if you create a piece of content that doesn't speak to the buyer, to the reader, then it's, it's not going to do anything for you. Like it's, yeah, you'll rank, but you, no one will convert. Right. So they spend a lot of their time really understanding the business, the industry that it's in, the customers, their pain points. So they can take that data and figure out how do we angle this? How do we talk about this? How do we, you know, inject uh, personality? and um and empathy into the content when we go to create it so they're not actually doing the writing but they're creating the briefs for the writers um, to guide them and then you know sort of reviewing them and making sure that it aligns with the business's goals and so what is the primary obstacle that you face when working on content strategies i guess i'm not trying to simplify it again not trying to be dismissive by simplifying Mm -hmm. the process if you have a really slick process for topic clustering 
you mentioned as you were talking that essentially it leaves a, a plan of action, a prioritized plan of action of the areas to focus on. Then it sounds to me like the only limitation in businesses being able to commit to content strategy from that point is resource, is the ability to write fast enough, broad enough, empathetic enough content. Is that the biggest obstacle? Are there any others? Yeah, I would say that's that's actually probably the biggest one that remains, and it's a uh, it's a chasm, right? Like the most companies that we go to work with initially, like they don't have. Uh, like when I talk to the, the marketing department there, I'm like, you know, like, what does your system look like to continuously collect qualitative insights from your customers? Um, either, you know, the, the content marketing team rarely has that. So the product team does a lot of times, right? But maybe they're a service-based business, in which case they don't really have it. So they're not going to go talk to sales or, or success or something like that. But it's it's almost like oftentimes there's there's not enough customer details that we really want to have. Uh, because they've never done one-on-one interviews in a non-sales environment, you know, just to, just to collect that info. And that's um, that's probably like one of the biggest barriers. Beyond that, though, it's resources. A lot of times these companies are working with freelance writers and we try to encourage them. Uh, like we produce content for some of our for some of our customers, but um, we're very we're very particular. Um, we focus on purely bottom of funnel content. We think that general writers can write the top of funnel for the most part because it tends to be more broad. But uh, one of the problems I see I'm running through there is when it comes to finding hiring and retaining good talent. And um, when they are hiring freelancers, the problems that they run into is the freelancers will never understand the product as well as somebody internal at that company would. In addition to that, how to position themselves, right? Like whenever they're writing about the, um, the content, whenever they're writing their content and how they're, whether it's positioned within the market or against competitors, um, you know, freelancer just doesn't, doesn't tend to have that. So we spend a lot of our time after, um, sort of putting together the strategy and the plan. We spend most of our time like helping them manage and resource. And those are, uh, uh, like you said, like, uh, it's definitely not something I would dismiss because those are, those are like the soft skills, right. That are, uh, you, I can't solve those with an algorithm, right? Like that's, that's when, that's when you have to, uh, have to roll up your sleeves and, and really, you know, get face to face with people and, and, and learn to understand them. Do you think this aspect of scalable content could be partially solved by AI copywriting tools in the future? Is that something you're looking at? Mm, I think it can be solved as long as, I mean, I'm never going to say never, right? I mean, we've, who knows, um, you know, how advanced things can get. If, if it can get to the point where it can fact check itself, um, th- I think that's like one of its key limitations currently. Um, beyond that, it's, it's, as long as you have a human uh, there currently, say with like GPT-3 with the current models, you still need a human there to guide it, one to fact check it, to kind of keep it in its lane, to make sure that it flows, right? Like it doesn't necessarily understand, um, um, you know, good prose and, and things like that. But uh, beyond that too, it's also until it can understand the, the ICP, until it can understand the customers and you and how you're positioned in the market. Um, I don't think that they'll be able to fully automate it, but I, but it can definitely help a like a C, you know a writer who knows what they're doing who knows how to use the tools it can help that writer be much more effective um just because of all the things that we run into right like with like i still write and sometimes you're just looking at a blank page and you're like all right how do i start you know and uh and it can definitely help there how about emerging topics or trends where the keyword research might not exist yet and you take that data typically from tools you mentioned ahrefs do you face those challenges with projects for emerging 
yeah, emerging trends, products, services where the keyword research just doesn't exist yet? How do you approach those? Yeah, that was definitely like a problem in the beginning. And so um, if you're in an industry that's fairly new, right, or if you're in a very niche industry where the people don't really search all that much, um, well, honestly, if you're in one of those industries, then you search probably doesn't need to be the distribution channel that you're focused on anyway. But the um, what we've done there is you've got a few options. One that we found that works very well is to um, basically extract everything from Search Console um, automatically. So that's one of the inputs that we give it now as well. Um, so we'll take historical data over the past 18 months uh, from Search Console, whether you rank for it or not, like you'll still get impressions. And the reason for that is because rank tracking tools are checking the top 100 results all the time. And so you're still going to get an impression whenever something gets searched for um, or like when people are um, are scraping things, right? So you'll pull that. And then another good route to actually get additional emerging things are uh, from things like uh, like the PAAs that people also ask and the Google Auto Suggest API. So we'll pull in that data as well and then uh, use that to feed into our cluster to figure out where those questions and where those auto-suggest terms actually fit into the broader landscape. Typically speaking, they fit into an existing topic that already exists, you know, that the, they may already have a page for. Sometimes they do break out onto, onto their own, though. And at the same time, like, we refresh our data. Um, like, when we're working with a customer, we'll refresh it periodically. Sometimes every 30 days, depending on how dynamic the industry is, sometimes once a quarter or once a year, to see if intent has shifted. Because it will shift sometimes, and when it does, you you know you have to go back and uh, potentially combine two pages that maybe have merged over time, or you know get rid of a page uh, or split a page into two. So uh, yeah, I would say Google Search Console is a great one, um, especially whenever. So like one of the things that we do too is when we pull in that data, we have a trending report in ours that will show us what queries begin to spike in terms of um, trends on searches, whether we're ranking on the first page or on the tenth page, you know. Um, and we can use that as a, as a proxy to say, okay, like this is beginning to trend up. Let's go collect data. Um, I think there would be some interesting ways around, say, we're playing around with it right now. We're just trying to figure out what's the best way to curate it is from Google Trends. But you've got to uh, effectively give it seed keywords and then pull from its like related results. And sometimes those related results that it provides you in, in, uh, from the Google Trends API or, um, or not from the API, but th- uh, through the platform are completely... Um, like erroneous and off the wall. So beyond that though, it's honestly, it's customers. Like that's why we talk to customers because they, they will say things, right. That like the keyword research tools just don't have, right. Or the, or where the keyword research tools are showing zero search volume. But then when you go rank for those keywords and you see that people have searched for that, you're getting impressions for it. People are clicking on it. It's just that the tools like Ahrefs and SEMrush haven't even begun to pick them up yet. Yeah. And sometimes customers, in my experience, they might provide abbreviations or terminology that you just wouldn't think as a marketer or not being in that industry to search for. And that can give you kind of a seed phrase or seed keyword, which you can then go on a a kind of journey of discovery and opening up. It opens up the keyword research for you, I think. Especially whenever you view yourself as one thing and then you realize your customers think about you a different way. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that that not only impacts content strategy, that can impact your entire business strategy, right? And and you know, either whether it's pivoting your positioning a little bit, if it really resonates, it may help you kind of refine your messaging, or maybe you need to uh, button up your messaging to, you know, if they're if they're thinking about you in a way that you know isn't uh, 
the way that you want them to, right? If they're trying to lump you together with another product when you're really trying to differentiate yourself and things like that. We've been talking the whole episode and I've been looking at this all through the lens of content and SEO. Can all of these principles in your software be applied to paid marketing as well? Uh, yeah, it can be applied to to Google ads. Um, I don't know about, I, I suppose YouTube to some extent, although YouTube's a very, has a very different algorithm, right? Like YouTube primarily relies on the, um, you know, the related videos um, is really the big thing. So I don't know that I would use it as much for YouTube. I think what you can do is you can figure out what's what's popular, what do people care about, what if it's a very competitive SERP, like you can go and make a video for it and probably rank for it instead and get and get better traction that way. But um, it does work for Google Ads. So the way that you can think about it there is that you know when you're going through adding negative keywords and uh, or trying to find additional keywords uh, to kind of group together into a into an ad group or an ad set, or even if you're doing SCAGs, um, that's where if you're, you know, applying negative keywords as well. Um, so single keyword ad group, um, ad group, the, um, when you're applying negative keywords, once you know that one keyword is not good, then you can effectively look at the cluster and say, what other, what are all the other variants and other keywords that fall within that same group? And then just immediately go add them to your negative list. So it can speed up, uh, you know, I guess like refining and testing of which keywords are going to work well. Cause the moment you do find one that works, you can also just go find that that group and, and add them to it as well. So it can really, it's more of a saving uh, in terms of budget um, versus performance, I would say. But um, it can it can it can reduce like the learning time and uh, and reduce the wasted ad spend. Um, but search is definitely the, the the best thing that it's made for. I can't really imagine a way that it would work all that well for for social. Um, I think you need to have a dramatically different approach to social. So. Yeah. Going back to search and in closing for this episode, one thing I was thinking about is how search behavior has changed. And I realized as we were talking, you've been exposed to so many keywords and so many data sets, uh, but also just so many topic clusters. Are there any trends in search behavior that you've identified cross industry when it comes to topic clustering? To elaborate a little bit, so you know where my thinking is going, I remember sort of maybe. 10 years ago when we started to get well, maybe even longer 10 15 years ago when we started to get more localized search search behavior changed and people started to search for x business near me or x service near me and near me was the thing that was appended onto the searches anything like that that you've spotted i think you know all the near me terms still exist uh, i do feel like they're not as used anymore because people are just kind of assume that the results are going to be local um, that being said, I, I, I have noticed, uh, th- this was like anecdotally, um, across a few different instances where people moved away from using near me to actually using the, the city, um, um, or location that they were actually in because the, because their cell phone tire, uh, would trigger them, uh, would ping them as being nowhere near where they actually were. And so they were getting completely irre- irrelevant results. Um, and so they started refining it, um, using the, the city, but, Beyond that, I would say the the largest trends that I'm seeing that are shifting that are really interesting is the Google recently introduced the um, the like an, they did this a long time ago though too so it's back again where they're indenting links um, uh, like related pages on a site um, they're indenting it underneath the search result and so what you're finding there are these very nuanced um, sort of intents um, like the difference between sometimes even like when people are searching for should I versus should you. Right. Um, 
we're seeing some more nuanced intent that way. Um, I'm seeing things become much more long tail as well. Like people are, whether they're typing out more uh, like, you know, fully formed questions or whether they're using, um, you know, a microphone like through like Google voice or something like that. The um, I'm seeing that or not Google voice, but you know, through the, the Google uh, search with the, with the uh, text to speech, whatever I'm seeing that a lot more. And I don't know. I've even seen people like just, just observing um, how they search um, like, you know, in in person and stuff. Uh, The younger generations are, typing out full, like full sentences. They're not, uh, they're not using like Google ease. Um, I think the way that, uh, you know, we were, um, that maybe like millennials or, or, or the other generations were maybe using because we Google came along while we were still here. So I'm, I'm seeing that a lot more, which is even more reason to, to collect more data so that you can, you know, see all the different like long tail variations, the ways that people think about things. That's a great way to close. Yeah, even it lends itself to the importance of collecting more data, but also distinguishing the data by intent and yeah. things like sentiment and uh, everything else that we've discussed in this episode. Scholar, uh, it's been really fascinating to talk through topic clustering with you and learn more about how you do it. If people want to extend the conversation or learn more about you and Ardent Growth, where can they find you? The best place is probably on LinkedIn. If you search for uh, my name is Scott Rees on LinkedIn. You, you should be able to find me. Um, beyond that, if you're in the content world and you're not part of uh, Jimmy Daly's uh, from uh, Superpath community, I'd highly recommend checking it out. I'm in there all the time and try to answer any questions that people uh, uh, throw my way over there. So, Scott, thanks again for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Take care. Thanks, Scott. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.